0: It's Monday, August 5th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Tragedy strikes again as two mass shootings at crowded public places in Texas and Ohio have claimed the lives of at least 29 people and injured dozens of others. And it all happened within 24 hours of each other. In Ohio, one of the victims was the shooter's sister, And in El Paso, we have a manifesto posted online that spoke of a Hispanic invasion of Texas. That case is now being treated as domestic terrorism. Ginger Gibson, reporter for Reuters, joins us for another mass shooting two weeks in a row. Next, the Boeing 737 MAX grounding could stretch into 2020, and we're finding out that there were red flags after the first crash about the possibility that another one could happen within months. An internal risk analysis done by the FAA suggested that a warning to pilots would be enough time to provide Boeing with 10 months to implement a fix. Andrew Tangle, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. Finally, a hidden epidemic of chronic disease might threaten cocaine and meth users in the coming years. Aside from the negative health effects of drug use, toxic lab-made adulterants are becoming more common. Dan Vergano, science reporter at BuzzFeed News, joins us for what to watch out for. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in.
1: If if Dayton police had not gotten to the shooter in under a minute, and think of that, 26 injured, uh, 9 dead, um, hundreds of people in the Oregon District could be dead today. Joining
0: us now is Ginger Gibson, reporter for Reuters. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. We had another two mass shootings at crowded public places in Texas and Ohio. Total, there was 29 lives claimed and just a bunch of other people wounded. These two shootings happened within 13 hours of each other, which is just, I mean, it's just horrible. We were just coming off of another shooting last week at the Gilroy Garlic Festival. You hear about it all the time. It just seems to be happening increasingly. What do we know about these two shootings?
1: It was just a tragic weekend in America with these two mass shootings, just horrific scenes across America. We do know that both shooters were young men in their 20s. A little bit more is known about the shooter in El Paso, but we know that in, in that case, he used an assault-style weapon, a long weapon with a semi-automatic trigger, which is almost all guns, uh, but this one is designed to fire a lot of bullets very quickly. We also know the shooter in Ohio used uh, what police were calling on Sunday a long gun. Uh, we presume it was, it was something like an AK-47, given the fact that he was was able to kill nine people and injure twenty six people in about a minute.
0: Yeah, because police were on the scene very quickly and they were able to kill the suspect right away, as you said, within a minute. So, but even still, nine victims were killed and twenty something other people were hurt during that. Um, let's let's start with a little bit more on Ohio. Uh, we know a little bit less there just because it happened more recently. And then I want to go back to El Paso because there's some some other details I want to talk about there. Uh, We know now that the shooter, his name was Connor Betts, and one of the interesting things that happened is that one of the victims in the shooting spree was his sister, 22-year-old Megan Betts. I mean, we don't know the motivations yet, but I mean, that's just a weird coincidence.
1: Yeah, it seems unlikely that that was a coincidence. We have seen several instances in the past of mass shootings where the shooters had a target that was a family member or an acquaintance or someone that they knew and then they kept shooting. That may have been the case here. We don't know. But there is reporting that one of the victims was his sister, as well as reports that another victim was his sister's boyfriend, a yet unidentified male who was with her at the time. You know, everyone is always trying to look for a reason why these things happen. And I think that the fact that his sister was there that this had elements of, of what we would call a domestic incident, given the fact that it were siblings, is going to make some people wonder if if that was not part of his motive in opening fire in a, in a public place.
0: That shooting happened at a very popular place called the Oregon District at one in the morning. It's just a bunch of bars and restaurants, a really lively area, people just having fun. I want to shift over to El Paso. Like I said, we we just know a little bit more there. The suspect is 21-year-old Patrick Crucius, Of Allen, Texas. He had to drive like 10 hours to El Paso just to commit this crime. This one is interesting because minutes before this happened, there was a quote unquote manifesto posted online that talks a lot about uh, Hispanics invading the country, things like that. This is now being treated as a domestic terrorism case. There could be charges of hate crimes associated with it because of this manifesto that they're still trying to confirm and attach to him. This one seems a lot worse.
1: And in this case, the shooter surrendered to police, so he's still alive. After killing 20 people in El Paso, the shooter there. Uh, was taken into custody. So he has been questioned by police. And you're right, this manifesto that he, as has been reported, has posted on the internet prior to to opening fire was part of a history of posts he appears to have made on some online forums where people can say some pretty awful things. He was uh, describing Mexicans as being invaders into the United States, uh, said that people shouldn't blame Donald Trump, but that he agreed with him and really seemed to lay out a motive, which was to go to a city in his state that was quite a bit far away, but a large city that has a a culture and a a population that's quite enmeshed uh, with their Mexican uh, sister city of Juarez. People come across the border. You know, I've been to that Walmart, and when you're in that Walmart parking lot, uh, a good chunk of the cars have Mexican license plates on it. That's because these communities operate as one in some cases, and people come over to do their grocery shop. Or to buy things at the Walmart, so uh, undoubtedly there would have been a number of people, not immigrants, but but residents of Mexico, who had come across for the day just to do their shopping.
0: This manifesto, posting it online, I think he posted it to this website. You were talking about it's called Eight Chan, and it's really just the cycle. He pointed to the shootings in New Zealand in Christchurch. You know, you post something online, a racist screed, your manifesto, then you go carry out the violence then it really inspires other to do the same. And and these things are becoming instructive more than explanatory. You know, it's not just, hey, this is why I did this. It's trying to inspire other people to do some uh, similar things.
1: And, and, you know, we've heard from critics, not just of the president, but sort of of the state of culture, that – we in the United States have an epidemic of young white men who are obtaining high powered weapons and who are walking into public places and trying to kill as many people as possible. Um, They have shades sometimes of the same motives, sometimes not. Uh, We we don't know yet what the motive in Ohio was. It might've been um, any other number of reasons. It might've been inspired or not.
0: The reports are that both in both cases, rifles were used long guns, uh, What does this do for the conversation about guns and race as well, you know, pointing to that manifesto?
1: I think at this point, I would expect it to do very little to the conversation about guns. You know, we've, uh, as a nation, not been willing to move forward on gun legislation. Um, I do see it becoming something, again, that people point to as we approach another election. But it is a stalemate in our country. And I would be very surprised if we saw legislative changes
0: Ginger Gibson, reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: In the days after Lion Air, they saw significant risk that another cockpit emergency where this MCAT system is misfiring could occur and create an emergency that could potentially wind up in a catastrophe if it's not properly addressed.
0: Joining us now is Andrew Tangle, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Thanks for having me. This whole story about the Boeing 737 MAX has been a mess from the beginning. We know that this flight control system called the MCAS system was responsible for the Lion Air crash, the Ethiopian Airlines crash also We're learning about an FAA report, an analysis that they did that basically found that there was a high risk of emergency after the first Boeing Max crash, and it just took a long time to really get stuff done. I think they recommended that Boeing could have about 10 months to fix the problem, but the next crash, the Ethiopian Airlines crash, happened about five months later. What do we know about this FAA analysis?
2: It was an internal risk assessment analysis that the FAA conducted after the first 737 MAX crash in October of last year. They used this methodology known by its acronym TRAM, the Transport Airplane Risk Assessment Methodology. They use it for serious issues, more mundane, run-of-the-mill air safety questions, just to sort of understand sort of what could happen in given a certain potential hazard, what that could mean in terms of bad things happening uh, to airplanes and people on the airplanes over what period of time. It's a way to measure risk. So they did this as they would normally after Lion Air, and they found an unacceptably high level of risk given what they were learning uh, in those early days about how a malfunction from a single angle of attack sensor that measures the direction of the plane's nose triggered this flight control system, MCAS, that many in the FAA uh, really hadn't heard that much about and uh, which pilots hadn't heard about it wasn't in the manuals and training and so forth. And basically, the FAA came away with a conclusion that they had to do something quickly, and immediately to mitigate the risk that they saw in this risk analysis, they still thought they needed to do something more permanent.
0: Is that why they suggested 10 months for them to be able to work on this to imp- design and implement the new changes to the system?
2: Basically, yes. I mean, my understanding is that the TRAM assessment methodology system basically tells you in a very sort of crude way, how many people could potentially die because of a potential hazard over a certain amount of time. So they have to measure how long a hazard can be mitigated through an interim action and then how long is too long for the hazard to go unaddressed for the long term. In the days after Lion Air, they saw significant risk that another cockpit emergency where this MCAS system is misfiring Could occur and create an emergency that could potentially wind up in a catastrophe if it's not properly addressed. So they determined that the first interim step, which was sending out an emergency airworthiness directive, it's like an emergency bulletin to airlines around the world that operate the MAX and pilots saying, hey, By the way, this system is on the airplane, although it didn't really mention the system that much. It talked about the behavior of the system, what to look for, and how to address it using a long-established emergency procedure that pilots are trained on. So that essentially gave the FAA comfort that they bought some time, that it mitigated the high risk they saw, but it didn't eliminate the risk. And they were pushing Boeing behind the scenes to work on a permanent solution. Boeing says that they immediately began after Lion Air working on some sort of software fix for MCAS to add redundancy and so forth and basically get to where they were right. Uh, and,
0: and unfortunately, going
2: right until the, the second crash. But, yeah, unfortunately,
0: so. the second crash came before they were able to implement any of that stuff. The other stuff that I'm seeing is that this grounding could stretch into 2020. It seems that Boeing has the software patch ready to go, but they still need it to get approved by regulators, that, and a bunch of other things that kind of came up while they started looking into it. There was a bunch of other things that they said, well, you got to fix this, you got to fix that. So they're saying that it could stretch into 2020. Boeing said they might have to halt production if the grounding drags on, and in the meantime, Airlines are just left in the lurch having to figure out how to fly people around with less airplanes available.
2: Right. The impact is far and wide. The downstream effects are still unfolding. It's still a very fluid situation. At this point, it sounds like Boeing is expecting to submit its paperwork for all the fixes to the FAA in September, so the fall. That could put the FAA's decision to unground and let the planes fly with passengers again as soon as october or in the fall
0: andrew tangle reporter for the wall street journal thank you very much for joining us
2: thank you
3: seems to be a mixture of both better chemistry and sort of worse chemistry. I mean, they have the product, they adulterate it, it comes out funny, but what the hell, they're going to sell it anyways, and they might as well market it as something. But this is like, according to the people observing this, is becoming more of a, a trend.
0: Joining us now is Dan Vergano, science reporter at BuzzFeed News. Thanks for joining us, Dan. Happy to do it. Dan, we've had you on multiple times to talk about a range of issues. We've talked about opioids and the crisis that's going on. This new story is talking about new and weird kinds of cocaine that could really start a hidden epidemic of health threats. Things like organ failure, leaky blood vessels, flesh-eating infections.
3: Underneath the overdoses caused by opioids, there's been this surprising increase in uh, overdoses tied to meth and cocaine. So we have like a stimulant epidemic starting behind the opioid epidemic. And even uh, though know, the question is, what's killing all these people? Is it just using more Coke? Is there fentanyl in the Coke and the methamphetamines? And it seems like that is the case. Fentanyl, you know, is a, a deadly opioid. But there is some suggestion in data that was presented at uh, some scientific meetings the last year that what's going on are there are more dangerous and just kind of strange interactions of these cutting agents that are in cocaine. They've been in there for a long time, but now we're seeing more of them, higher concentrations of them. And they are linked to health effects. So there's a lot of concern that essentially there's a hidden epidemic of, of both overdoses and chronic health conditions, uh, the things like organ failure and cancer and heart disease that, they, that are linked to these uh, these adulterants. It's sort of lurking behind everything else.
0: Now, how are we getting word of this? From your article, there's been stuff that's going on in South Africa and South America that kind of points to this trend.
3: That's where most of it's coming from. The testing that's done overseas is funded by the State Department. And what they're seeing there are effects largely tied to smoked cocaine to crack in places like South Africa, Argentina, Brazil, and so forth, uh, where the adulterant levels are already really high. And it's been that way for a long time. These deworming agents, uh, Levamisol, which kills your immune system, phenacetin, uh, this painkiller that's you know, linked to heart disease and cancer, uh, leaky blood vessels, that's been there for like a decade. And so what they're seeing is in some data from about six U.S. states, these levels creeping up in cocaine and meth here and also heroin as well. And what it seems to be tied to, whereas some of the old cutting agents, you know, sugar, aspirin or whatever, are just for bulk, you know, to to bulk out the the dose that's sold to people. These ones seem to uh, be picked for their chemical uses. They extend highs. They make the effect of the drugs last longer. So it's a drug market responding to demand, trying to make things sort of have a bigger kick. And why are
0: things different now? I mean, all of this has to do with mm-hmm. chemistry and obviously cutting it in the lab and whatnot and then distributing it out. So what's changed
3: for this? This is another unforeseen effect of globalization. This, essentially, the drug cartels in places like Colombia and Mexico, Peru, that handle the cocaine are becoming more professional. You know, it's basically the knowledge of the chemistry that's bringing uh, K2, you know, synthetic cannabinoids to the U.S. It's bringing fentanyl into the heroin supply. It's uh, producing methamphetamines on the industrial scale in Mexico instead of, you know, the breaking bad kitchen chemistry is now reaching into cocaine. And so they're able to manipulate things in wild ways. One of the strangest products they talked about at this meeting was the pink cocaine that's actually yeah. uh, synthetic mescaline. I mean, that's a hallucinogen. It's not even a stimulant. So you're just getting all this kind of wacky things. And also these chemical byproducts of the more complex chemistry are also showing up as adulterants in the drugs.
0: You mentioned Breaking Bad and the famous drug in there was the blue meth. You know, Walter White mixing up some new thing because he was, you know, a chemistry teacher and he knew how to make it super good. Uh, but this is kind of on the wackier side where they're just mixing a bunch of stuff. A lot of synthetic stuff it comes out a different color and then you sell it, you market it and you get it out there.
3: Right. It seems to be a mixture of both better chemistry and sort of worse chemistry. I mean, they have the product, they adulterate it, it comes out funny, but what the hell, they're going to sell it anyways, and they might as well market it as something. We've seen in the past with drug Fads, you know, things like Grey Death sold as an exotic heroin. But this is like, according to the people observing, this is becoming more of a a trend south of the border and not north of the border. And, you know, people aren't seeing this everywhere and the adulterants aren't tested for, which is the real problem is, you know, the cops make prosecutions based on the main drugs, not on the adulterants. So they don't test for it.
0: So a lot of what this is causing are chronic health problems. Obviously, these things don't come on until after repeated use, maybe years later sometimes. And and people don't really notice it. As you said, they're not testing for it is a big problem. So it's hard to pinpoint it as it's getting here.
3: Yeah, that's correct. The the worry is that, you know, ER rooms are suddenly be dealing with these people five years from now and not even knowing what was going on. You know, this was caused by adulterants in my chronic cocaine use over the last 10 years. (laughs) You know, it probably isn't the first thing that people are going to say when they come into the hospital with kidney failure.
0: Yeah. I mean, obviously, the first thing is drugs are bad and really people shouldn't do them. But the reality is that a lot of people get their hands on this stuff and a lot of people do have problems and with addiction and things like that. Dan Vergano, science reporter at BuzzFeed News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Brooke Peterson and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez and this was your Daily Dive.